Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, as always, the creator of the show, my co-host, Tom Chuck. Hello, Christopher. Okay, we have another jam-packed show of three very different artists this week. First of all, there's David Bowie, and we have a great interview from 1983 upon the release of Let's Dance, which was the album to send Bowie to the stratosphere. He was already hugely successful and influential, but this one made him a superstar. And for this Bowie interview... We've brought in a former colleague of yours from the old Much Music days to share her experiences with Bowie, and there are plenty of them, so I'm looking forward to chatting with her mere seconds from now. We also have a really interesting interview with Depeche Mode from 2005, or as I like to call them in the 80s and 90s, Depressed Mood. But this is a good chat because they were already 25 years into their career, and we talked to them about their early days, the current project they had going, and their appreciation for Canada, Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto. Good stuff coming up. And finally, Christopher... You and I had an argument about whether or even to feature Graham Parker on our show, because not a lot of people know who he is. But whether you know him or not, this interview is interesting, but more importantly, it's hilarious. So that's near the end of our show. Graham Parker, it's excellent. So let's get started with our Bowie interview from 1983, the year of Let's Dance. This is ultra cool because we're talking about David Bowie right now. We did a Bowie interview a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to our special guest about that because I want to tell her about our favorite highlight. Okay, I don't know if you remember what that is. No, of course not. Okay. (laughs) Would you please introduce our guest as we do our David Bowie segment? But go ahead. We do have a guest, and we don't very often have guests on Famous Lost Words, so we have a special guest, my dear friend and former co-worker from Much Music Days, Laurie Brown. Yay! All right, Laurie. Hi, hi, hi. I am so pleased to be here in a small (laughs) podcasting room. (laughs) It is intimate, isn't it? It's very intimate, but I'm getting used to it because I've entered the podcast world as well. What is yours called? It's called PonderCast, and you can find out all about it at pondercast.ca. And there's a lot of music in it, too. So if you're a fan, come on down and have a listen. Is the music similar in direction to the music that we used to hear on your radio show? Yeah, it is. It's very sort of late-night radio, only mm-hmm. late-night podcasting. And when I watch when people listen, that's when they listen, is late at night. So it's just me throwing out these little thought sparks and having a lot of original music to go along with what I'm writing, which is pretty cool. Where should we begin? Well, so let's talk about uh, David Bowie. Now, I understand that you have a David Bowie story, but before you do, we oh, ran... more than one. Oh, more than one. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think you've actually alluded to some of these. Okay. This is going to be good. Um, but when we ran our David Bowie interview uh, a few months ago, it was really interesting because Bowie was being true Bowie, you know, a real artist thinking in a way that most of us don't. And... But one of the questions we asked is like, um, you know, wh- uh, where do you live? Where- where's your house? And he says, well, I don't have a house. That would be counterintuitive to everything that I stand for. It would go against all of my art, right? And it was, it was a really <laughs> posh, posh kind of answer. And it was very funny. And we were kind of gently mocking our friend, you know, our hero, David Bowie, um, pardon the pun. And, um, <laughs> uh, but we had a lot of fun at his expense there. But also there were some great moments from 
uh, from that interview. So this interview is from about 1983, and I believe that part of this is a press conference, and part of this is a separate interview because because uh, a lot uh, you may not know this, but a lot of the interviews that we have are completely not labeled at all, and we have to guess wow. based on the answers as to who it is and what they're talking about and Holy when it was. Smokes. But that's kind of part of the fun that as a geek. That is yeah. a music fan's trivia game. It's great. Sure. So tell us your connection with David Bowie. Um, the first time I met Bowie, I was in London working for Much Music, and I honestly can't remember who I was there to interview, but I got a call from the office saying, can you get to Paris tomorrow to interview Bowie? The answer to that question, by the way, is always yes. <laughs> always yes. And then it was absolutely terrifying, you know, get to the airport, find the first flight, buy the tickets, get there, and then think, I'm going to interview Bowie tomorrow for the first time. And how do you interview someone who has given way more interviews than you will ever conduct in your life? There's no way you can do enough research. There's no way. Right. You just have to, at that point, work on your gut instinct and what you know as a fan. So he was very cool. <laughs> no surprise. Surprise. Uh, he was eating a croque monsieur sandwich in his hotel room when I walked in. <laughs> and I thought, how can he eat in front of me? I could never eat in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we just, it was probably one of the best interviews I think I've done because I had to work just solely on instinct. Mm. And there was no, I hadn't seen the show. I didn't know what the new tour was about. It was a glass spider tour. And uh, so it just went. And for me, that was one of my favorite interviews because because of that fact. The thing about that is it led to many other interviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's fair to say that there was a special connection between Bowie and yourself, a professional one, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, how do you think that, why do you think that happened, and how did it sort of you know spin out over time? Well, you probably noticed this too, Christopher, is that when you make a connection with an artist, the first interview, and... Then you meet them again and again. It's almost like the relation just, you you get to know each other better each time. It's like the conversation just continues. And I found that each time I talked to him, we went further, we got a little deeper, he trusted me more, he gave me more, he was incredibly respectful and generous. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was able to, even more so, trust my instincts and, and just throw things out there that I think, I wonder if he's got an answer about this. And he'd go, well, yes, I've just read that book, as a matter of fact, or I've just seen that play, or whatever, you know? So, And that was the fun of it for me, is just guessing what was on Bowie's mind. There's a lot, I would think. Now, just before we get to the clips, there's just one little story I want to ask you about, which you told me when when I was interviewing you for the book, uh, Is This Live, about the early years of Much. And it was that time when there was a bank of cameras. I think it was at a show in California. Oh, yeah. You know, the highlight of my career. Oh, oh, that moment. And I wasn't there. (laughs) I was back in Toronto just, you know, getting ready to do my shift. And a Much Music cameraman had been part of this huge press gaggle of people with Bowie. I think it was some big award show or something like that. And he was walking by all this press and he saw the Much Music logo on the camera. And he turned to the camera and he said, hi, Laurie. (laughs) (laughs) And that piece of tape came winging back from, I think it was Los Angeles or something like that, and, and played it. And it was just like, 
oh my God, you mean that God <laughs> has remembered who I was when he was not standing in front of me? That's all I asked for. <laughs> You know, it is funny because, Christopher, you've interviewed so many people over the years. Lori, you've interviewed so many people over the years. I've met a, a considerable number of stars. But the the ones that are the most meaningful are the ones that you make the personal connection with. Yeah. You know, I did an hour interview with Alanis Morissette uh, many years ago. And when it was done, she complimented, like, the interview. She said, that was a great conversation. And that meant more to me than the fact that I was meeting Alanis Morissette, right? I was nervous. There were so many questions. She was a huge star at the time. And there are moments when you make those connections and those moments are way more memorable and important to us as professionals than just the sheer number of, uh, of, of superstars that we meet. I think so. I think, think because the beauty of a great interview is that for both people, it just feels like a conversation. Yeah, right. And for the audience, it feels like they're having a real conversation. They're sitting at the next table. Yeah. 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 This person's really listening when the other person's talking, and this person's really listening when the other person's talking. Mm-hmm. And it that, that people love to hear in an interview. Let's listen in on some Bowie clips and uh, we'll react. Okay. Okay, so here's David Bowie talking about his brand new song from 1983. I've written a song called Let's Dance that has the, uh, um, a sort of a desperate love song which has that kind of quality to it and sort of summed up what I'd like to do with the tour, the feeling of the tour. Okay, so there you go. And of course, you know, Let's Dance, like we were all huge Bowie fans over the years, but Let's Dance really changed the game for him. It put him in the category of Madonna and Prince and, you know, even Michael Jackson. It was a real game changer for him. I think he finally found a way to see what was going on out in the popular music world and take what he wanted from it. But, as he said, a desperate love song, Mm -hmm. which is the genius of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Born in the USA. You know, you can listen to that two very, very different ways. And so to make people dance about this must have given him ultimate joy. Yeah. And here he is talking about kind of his new sound for that album. It has an intention of being danceable, but I think uh, um, in terms of lyric, I've tried to keep a simple... Uh, as anything that I've ever written before. I'd like to consider that uh, I'm trying to write in a a more obvious and positive manner than I've written in a long time. I'm not quite so concerned with cut-up exercise or uh, using juxtaposition of lyrics or whatever. I'd like to do something positive with what I'm writing, if I'm going to continue writing. And if it's not working after two or three albums, I'll stop. You know, that's very interesting. One of the great songs on that album is perhaps as poppiest and it's Modern Love, Mm -hmm. right? And that song just sounds like a great pop song. And my my boys, who were te- late teens at the time, just about you know a year or two ago, were playing me that song. And my son, my my oldest son, was just raving about the lyrics of Modern Love. I'm kind of going, I've never really noticed it. It was just a, it was just kind of a Bowie pop song to me. But those lyrics are so good. They're so deep. And I think what you're saying, Laurie, is absolutely true. He found his voice within the pop vein, but he could still be Bowie. And the the depth of those lyrics and the imagery that he used was still him, but it sounded great on the radio. You know, and I think you can make a comparison to Brian Ferry and Roxy Music in that. Mm -hmm. Brian Ferry's lyrics, if you pull them apart, they're basically cliches. They're basically things that everyone has said before, and he utilized that really, really well in, in just finding very simple words that everybody pairs together 
together in the same way. It's kind of like a cut-up technique, only it is with cliches and putting them together. And how can I make something meaningful? So, what is a cut-up technique? Because he uses that that phrasing a couple times in this interview. What does that mean? It is something that started with the Dadaist movement、okay. in the、uh, early twentieth、uh, century. And I think that's where Bowie got it, perhaps more so than William Burroughs. William Burroughs did it as well, where you just take a bunch of words, cut them all up, throw them up in the air, put them down, and then see what you come up with.、Mm-hmm. And it's finding meaning where no meaning exists. So, but I think with Bowie, I think that he was probably pulling on the Dadaist、um, idea rather, maybe more so than William Burroughs. Okay, I like too that he talks about being obvious and positive. But not in a disparaging way. That to、yeah. him is is, a, is an, an upbeat thing to do. Yeah, and that kind of flies contrary to some of his previous albums. And here he is talking about his relationship to RCA, his previous record label. I think that I I released、uh, several very interesting, intelligent, and important albums on RCA, which they didn't seem to uh, um, give much、uh, time for. A lodger was very much one of them. Yeah, low and heroes were two others,、um, and I just felt. Well, I think we both felt that it was time that we、uh, maybe forgot about each other. <laughs> <laughs> nice way to put that.、Oh, there you go. So, and here's David Bowie talking about the audience for hit singles versus his loyal audience that follows him album to album. I don't hold much faith in things like singles because,、uh, you know. If singles artists, you're only as strong as your last single, and it's not my audience seems to be a pretty loyal one.、Um, and I think from that, the rest of the audience either grows or, or gets smaller according to the last single you put out. And you can't really hold much store by all that, you know. You get to a point where you realise only a certain amount of people like you, and those are the people that are going to be there, and, and that's life. But you know, you have to attract a certain audience to make that philosophy. Manageable in terms of being able to forward your career. In other words, making enough money by selling enough albums so that you can not care about singles.、Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Could it be any more true than it is today that artists, for the most part, live from single to single, just as he's saying back in 1977? It's so I mean, weird. Is, is Katy Perry if she will she survive a, a down album with no hits、yeah. on it? It's weird too, though, because if you ask. Musicians, they still consider the album that hour's length of music as their artistic structure.、Mm-hmm. Um, I still believe that most musicians say that's how I think of my music, and that is sort of the cycle of sound and ideas and feelings that I put together. So I think it's a real. It's a real. It's tearing the music industry apart in a lot of ways. Where, you know, if you don't. Do a great single, you don't get to make an album. Well, and the foundation for the music biz- business—let's use the word here, <laughs> loosely,、um, <that laughs> nasty word—is the sale of an album with the ten or the twelve tracks on it、yep. and the revenue that flows from that.、Yep. If it continues where it's only one song at a time, it's an entirely different structure. It's like podcasting, and a, di- <laughs> and a difficult <laughs> one to sustain at that. Yeah. Okay, this next clip is great. So listen to、uh, David Bowie from 1983 talking about what movie got him interested in rock and roll. I think the first time I really wanted to play music is when I saw a film of the Little Richard band, and I think the movie was called Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll, Mr. Rock and Roll. I think it was Mr. Rock and Roll. It was an Alan Freed movie.、And、if I remember rightly, Little Richard and his band were in it. 
playing a couple of songs. It was probably Tootie Fruity and Long Tall Sally or something. Or Lucille, I think it was. Lucille. And when I saw that uh, saxophone lineup, I immediately... That was it. I didn't want to do anything else in life but play the saxophone. So I guess that was the first time I wanted to play music. Who would have called that, that Little Richard was the number one inspiration for David Bowie? And not even Little Richard, but the guys in the sax section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he started to learn sax when he was 13 years old. And he yeah. was playing with jazz people in, uh, in you know, was it Brixton where he came from, right? That's how he started, was this love of the sax, you know? Like, it's it's crazy to me that he could move from side guy with interesting instrument to the ultimate performer that he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? And here's David Bowie talking about some of his favorite albums. Singles I, could, I can't really talk about. I, I've not... Singles for me have always been part of an album. I've never gone out to make a single. They've always been part of the album the albums that i like particularly the one is low which is the first of the um, bowie eno trilogy um and the second one would have to be diamond dogs which uh, was the first time i really played around with uh, cutting up music i'd been cutting up lyrics for a number of years but uh, it's the first time also that i'd played instruments myself all over the album. I had just broken up the spiders and I didn't really want to entrust my music to another set of musicians at the time. Uh, so I tried everything myself, and guitar, drums, and, and saxophones, and synthesizers, and so it has a peculiarly uh, idiosyncratic style. Uh, I find it very endearing, uh, kind of remote and a bit scary. It's nice. <laughs> David Bowie just <laughs> called his old music endearing. That's kind of cool. Well, there he, I listen to that and I think, here's a man who's taking control, who yeah. wants control over every aspect of the sound. He's had it with the band. <laughs> but how many truly great, enduring artists cannot be you know, accused of just that? It, it, Prince, and there's nothing you know, wrong with that. Yeah. It just means that they have, they have so they have many creative ideas that... It's easier to do it yourself than but explain was, it. The thing that killed me in, in the interviews that I saw it with you is that there was this really light-hearted quality about Bowie. Some yeah. of this stuff is very serious, but did you find him to be almost comedic at times? Yeah. Really? He was very uh -huh. self-deprecating, -de very self-deprecating, and liked to poke fun at himself as well, which I f found very endearing. It, he still felt that it was pop music, even though I can't think of another artist who is so who was so deeply in love with art, all kinds of art, and, and the importance of it. And, and yet, there he was, just, it was no big deal. In one clip, I saw you guys switch roles. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. I, I can't even remember what he asked me. He didn't <laughs> ask me out. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean switch roles in that he became the interviewer yes. and you became the well, that subject was the, of the interview. That was the question I was looking for. <laughs> Would you like to go out with me, Laurie Brown? And that never happened. I don't remember what he said, but that was fun. It was something along the lines of um, Laurie Brown. Well, was the last time we saw each other, was it Paris? Oh, yeah. You know, it was one of those, like... <laughs> we'll always have Paris. Yes. <laughs> wow, you literally will always have Paris. Yeah. That's great. Okay, and here's Bowie talking about how bad times make for good songs. Bad times produce interesting songs, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, I think, uh, as an artist, I find that I 
creates a little battlefield inside me and I set different forces at work and uh, the outcome of it all becomes the song. I think, uh, to a certain extent, an artist plays with his psyche quite drastically. Um, sometimes it can produce very dangerous circumstances, I think, but I think it is necessary for the um, artist to put himself through all kinds of emotional experiences to give depth to um, the songs that he's writing. For me, anyway. It's a, it's a personal opinion. I mean, every artist is different. Isn't that great? He creates a battlefield within himself and sets the forces kind of at each other. Mm. Wow. What a way to write a song. That sounds painful. It sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah. But we could always count on Bowie for that because he could always write a song that we would love and yet it was about the darker side of ourselves. And so... That's why I think it resonated more than just another hit single on the radio, because there was always something deeper that we could relate to, whether, you know, it was feeling isolated or alienated or um, rejected, fearful, yeah. rejected. Mm-hmm. He was always, you know, looking out for the misfits. And, and we all felt like misfits growing up mm-hmm. in our you know, most deeply uh, rabid fan stage of our love of music. So true, Laurie. Absolutely. But there's also the, the there like some of the imagery in his songs were so cool. You know, um, China Girl. I stumbled into town just like a sacred cow, visions of swastikas in my head, plans for everyone. Like, wow. And I just, you first hear that and it's mind blowing. You don't even know exactly what it means. And perhaps he didn't even when he wrote it. But those images and those lyrics and the way he sang it was just so cool. Yeah, okay. that's a great pop song. What did Iggy have to do with that song? I think Iggy Iggy co-wrote that song, yeah. Okay, so this final clip with uh, David Bowie from 1983 is talking about the future of music video. I haven't really observed, but what I I do know about uh, video so far is that it started off uh, as an interesting idea to connect vision and uh, music. I think it was just straightforward visual interpretation uh, at first. And then the idea of making the little movies that seem to be uh, rampant at the moment. I think presumably the next step, for me personally anyway, would be to utilise the uh, three or four minutes that one has at one's disposal to make some kind of positive statement in terms of um, a socially related subject. Uh, The videos get played all over the world. Very often they're seen an awful lot. I think it would be very useful to make make some kind of point in in them um, and let them serve a third purpose other than just be visually decorative and to interpret the music. Well, there you go. So Bowie talking about music videos, and of course, he would have some very memorable music videos from that era. But let's not forget the video for Ashes to Ashes, which is one of the strangest and kind of one of the forerunners for artistic music videos that would become far more commonplace in a few years. Yeah, I love he calls them these little movies <laughs> that they're making, but he blew the whole thing apart. Like, he jammed the whole history of art into his video making and turned them into incredible works of art. So it's so funny to hear him say these little movies. I think they're going to, I think I'm going to be able to do something with that. <laughs> okay, so we just looked up the writer for China Girl, and it was Iggy Pop with David Bowie. I don't know, but I have this story that uh, seems right to me that Bowie was trying to help Iggy Pop because Iggy was really 
down and out in Berlin, and he、mm. was trying to find him a way to get him back up out of the depths, and he'd share the writing credit of that song with him. I could be wrong, but that's we what call my... those apocryphal tales. Yes, and, which gives <laughs> gives you a lot of leeway, and that's that's the way we roll here on Famous Lost Words.、So. Okay, perfect. You've invited the right person then. <laughs> so joining us for our chat about David Bowie was Laurie Brown, and Laurie, tell us once again about your podcast. My podcast. Is kind of late night listening. If you want some great original music and some great Canadian music, it's all there. It's called Pondercast, and you can find it on the website pondercast.ca or on iTunes or every other platform. Excellent. We like platforms. <laughs> platforms, <laughs> not shoes. Not no shoes. more platform shoes. No, no. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, guys. That was fun. Thanks、great. so much for coming, Laurie. Thanks, Christopher. Oh, great song! That's the Pesh Mode from 2005, and their song "Precious." Bit of a comeback for them. In fact, it was to be their last notable chart hit in North America for quite some time. This interview with the Pesh Mode goes back to that year, 2005. Andy Fletcher in conversation with broadcaster May Potts, who began by asking Andy why they chose "Precious" to be the first single from that album. We just thought it was a really good song. It actually sounds like it's lifted from Violator. <laughs> It, and it does. It's not necessarily the sound of the whole album, but we just think it's a great song. Which you know what? I got to admit, there's an awful lot of Depeche music that I love, but as an overall record, Violator is one of my my faves. Well, it's, I think it's probably the best album we've ever made.、Uh, it just really came right. It was sort of a almost magical,、um, especially the release of Personal Jesus、um, a few months before the album was released, and then. To hit everyone with "Enjoy the Silence," you know, it was just a, a phenomenal album. Yeah,、uh, when I listened to a song like your leadoff track,、uh, "A Pain That I'm Used To,"、um, it actually made me think right away of how much people like Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails owe to Depeche Mode. Yeah, I mean,、uh, it makes us feel very proud、um, that people do cite us as, as influences. You know, when we started,、uh, when we were kids, basically, when we were seventeen, eighteen, when we started the band. You know, we were influenced by certain people, and now to 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 have influenced other people is 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 a real honour. Do you imagine that、uh, John the the Revelator could end up being a single as well?、Uh, it could do. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. I think it's interesting too because you know I know that you guys have always explored themes of,、uh, you know, there is a darkness in some of your, the themes of your songs: redemption, sin,、um, you know, pain,、uh, forgiveness, pain and suffering. Yeah, pain and suffering. There you go. <laughs> Things. But you know what? When you think about what is going on globally these days, and、uh, it, it has been a number of years. I mean, this is pretty much your first release since you know major events like nine eleven and and、uh, you know the war in Iraq. Do you think that maybe the lyrics now are a bit more timely for some? I think、um, John the Revelation is my favorite track. You know, and、uh, we were just、uh, wondering if I mean it's a song about、um, revelations. And, but the general thing is that、uh, that、uh, there is only one God, and if there was only one God,、uh, if people、uh, could unite to that,、uh, it, would, it would solve a lot of the world problems we've got. <laughs> it is actually a very uplifting tune, especially in the gospel chorus too. Yeah, I mean it's it's like gospel glam. Yeah. <laughs> 
Gary Glitter meets uh, gospel music. Got to tell you, I was there for your very first show, and it was just after the release of Just Can't Get Enough. That was at the uh, concert hall. Brit Invasion, wasn't it? Yeah, and you guys. The jam played a couple of days before. Was it it Massey Hall or something? Massey Hall. And and I remember, too, um, at the concert hall when you guys played there and you had the big tape machines. This was, I guess, gee, I'm trying to remember the year. Would it have been like 1980 or 81? 81. 81. 81, yeah, definitely. I still remember the response of the audience being so negative towards (laughs) synthesizers and the tape machines. And I remember people grumbling in the audience about that. When you think back on that, um, you know, do you sort of find it kind of funny now, especially when you think about how the music world has evolved and how technology has evolved? But do you remember that response when you first came out? I don't actually particularly remember, but, um, you know, we just thought that that was the way to make music, uh, an interesting way to to go forward in music. And it turned out we were right. Um, And, you know, we... We did have a few problems uh, from from sort of your usual rock critics and things like that that thought it was a bit strange. But I also think that was the that was our appeal to a lot of people in say in Toronto, for instance, which has always been one of our biggest places we've played. You know, uh, the fact that we did look and we sounded different to anyone else they they'd seen before. It definitely um, was a change at the time, and I wonder, too, whether, you know, it's sort of funny for you to maybe run into people who were naysayers of Depeche Mode in those early days. Do you ever have that desire to go, hey, hey? Uh, I do. For us, we, we just feel we're in a great position, you know, uh, 25 years on. Um, like I say, the mood in the, in the in our camp is very, very good and positive, and uh, um, we're in a great position. It's been a wonderful journey for us, and... Um, you know, we have fans all over the world um, that are very loyal to us. It's a really good good feeling. You are in a unique position. There are very few bands that can lay claim to that. I just saw you two the other night as well. And, and uh, you know, really you're in a, in a whole elite league now where you can actually say that you have been not only together for 25 years, but, you know, um, viable and making great music for 25 years. What? Let's hope it continues. <laughs> I hope so too. And I, and I know that, um, you know, I think it was Edge who was recently talking about how, you know, with Bono and his causes, it, while the band has held together and, and they're still very happy and successful together, there's definitely a change in their relationships. There has been a fracturing in some cases of, you know, relationships. How important is it? You see, a lot of us outside of bands would assume, oh, you guys go to barbecues together and everything, you know, but you don't. And how important is it to be so cohesive as a unit? It's not your- important at all, at all because... Um uh, being in a band is about four different personalities and it's about the electricity that's created when you get together in a studio and you try and produce music you know uh, it people have sometimes this idea that you know we walk around holding hands and saying we love each other uh, but it's that electricity that's that uh, between the members that is the most important so sometimes tension is good now you said that this is a this seems to be a good time in the band. First of all, geographically, how are you guys situated? You're you're not even on the same continents, all of you, are you? No, no, we're all over the place. But uh, you know, it's, for, for all of this year and all of next year, we see each other every day. Right. So uh, I mean, Dave and Marty married American women and um, and went to live in the states, and I still live in London. But uh, it's not. It would have been a problem, I think, if in the early years when all we had was Depeche Mode, but now we have families and children and 
Um, and, and it's just a different life now. And do, do you think that that actually makes the band, perhaps at this point, be able to work better together? I, I, I actually just think it doesn't have anything to, to really to do with the atmosphere. Okay. I think there's other issues. I, I don't think it matters where you live, especially mm-hmm. for a band like us. So now, let's face it, you guys do have families and kids. I mean, how comfortable are you with hitting the road for what's going to be the better part of the year? You know, it's more daunting as you get older. Um, it takes, it, it, you know, hangovers take longer to to go. Um, you know, traveling is more tough. But the, uh, I think we're really excited um, for the concerts and uh, because our audience is generally very, very good. So... Uh, I think it's going to be good. You know, I know that Toronto has been um, a very welcoming city for Depeche Mode from day one. You like it? Yes, any, I like Toronto. Any good and I memories? I like Canada. I love, love Vancouver and I love Montreal as well. Well, anyway, thanks so much for chatting with us. Okay, I appreciate May. that. And I'll see and you when I'm in uh, November. You That's sure bring will. Bring your daughter along. I will. That would be great. Thanks again, Fletch. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Andy Fletcher from Depeche Mode from 2005. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. Uh, So what we're doing is every week we dig up some interviews, classic interviews, from the archives that we have. Christopher, you and I had a little bit of a discussion about this next artist. Disagreement is what he means. A disagreement, right. It was a fight by phone, but there was some, (laughs) yeah, violence. Like brothers. That's right. We're we're not the Gallaghers. We're more the, the Everleys. And so I needed you to convince me as to why we should have Graham Parker as part of this show. So go. You I know, love Graham you, Parker. That's all you need to know. <laughs> no, I mean, there's all kinds of artists who are looked upon as being serious, influential, and I love the word seminal. You'll get that in any mm. sort of rock cr- criti- That's true, yeah. criticism. Um, and who never had the sales figures to support that, which, you know, in the eyes of people like me is unfortunate. But you think in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a whole cohort of um, rock and roll singer-songwriters. And I, right. think, I think I would put Petty and Bruce and Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, all sort of in that group. Sure, yeah. And I would put Parker in there, too. He was yes. mentioned as being an equal at the time. He never got the full-on acclaim that goes with being touted as highly yeah. as he was. But I think in terms of the quality of what he was doing, I mean, one of his albums, I think Howlin' Wind was, in the, at the time anyway, was in Rolling Stone's 100 Best Albums of All Time. See, and I don't even know that. I only know, the only song I know uh, by him is where he, he mentions the Mona Lisa sister. I think it's Get Started, Start a Fire. Uh, get started, start a fire. You're welcome. Um, and <laughs> and uh, that's the only song I really know by him, but I know him by name. I know Graham Parker and the Rumor, Graham Parker and the Shot, I think is another yes, band that he did an off- right. offshoot up. And I also know that he was heavily featured in that Judd Apatow movie, This is 40. Yes. Because one of the characters is trying to revive Graham Parker's career. And so <laughs> I find this just fascinating that you're so uh, you're so interested in this. Anyway, you, you have some clips to play for me as well. Yeah, I would check out Squeezing Out Sparks. Oh, I know that title. As well okay, as okay. Uh, as well as Howlin' Wind. Sure. Uh, at the time that I met Parker, he was on a solo tour supporting the Mona Lisa sister album, and he had some very funny things to say about how his vocals were regarded. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, for the first time in my career, I've got sort of serious comments that my singing is kind of decent, as opposed to it used to be, you know, Parlors, par- parlors, Parker's, you know, gnarly, snarling voice. And I thought, oh, God, man, that's why nobody buys my records. 
I'm a nasty, snarling, you know, ferocious. I mean, that doesn't impress me. Now people are talking about my singing, which has developed, you know, over the years into something that's, I'm sort of, you know, only a few light years away from being good. You know, that's my opinion, and I'm getting there. It's coming on, and the solo tour's helping. Because it's really, you've got to feel the place. Okay. That, <laughs> that is one of the best examples of self-deprecation that you could ever have. He says, my voice is a few light years away from being good. I love, <laughs> I love that. You know, Tom, it's an age-old parlor game trying to figure out the sources of songwriters' ideas. All mm -hmm. those little riffs and melodic bits that sound familiar, but you can't quite place where you've heard them before. Now, there's an old expression that we all know that says, good artists borrow and great ones steal. It's been attributed <laughs> to T.S. Eliot and Picasso. But you can go back to Shakespeare for stealing ideas for plays, right? Oh, Now, there oh, are strict wow. rules okay. regarding plagiarism in popular music, so you okay. have to be careful. But we're all influenced, consciously or not, by all the music we've heard and the things that have stuck with us. Think of a couple of recent uh, high-profile plagiarism cases, the Robin Thicke, Marvin Gaye suit, and, of course, the Sam Smith, Tom Petty one as right. well. Right, Stay With Me, but Won't Back Down. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, when I interviewed Parker, he was embarking on that solo tour, but he came clean about some of his sources well some songs that i'm playing on the solo tour like white honey for instance uh, that's been with me for a, you know from the first lp and it still you know holds up with a band or solo and um in fact I, I can't show you where i got that from but i can tell you what it's reminiscent of right all right and i may have done subconsciously because all songwriters in pop music, as you may have noticed by listening to the radio, steal constantly, you know. Or borrow, creatively. Yeah. <laughs> and White Honey is like a... White Honey Get it from your candy man Grooving On a Sunday afternoon No. I mean, I didn't sit around, and but that, you know, it, it just came to me one day, like ten years later. Mm. Mm, Could have got it from there. You know. There's a medley in the making here, huh? There is a medley, yeah. And other things, I know one thing that directly, uh, uh, "Don't Ask Me Questions" was one song that um, was on Howling Wind again, the first LP. And the chords for that, that B minor to G, which is the chord. Hey, Lord, don't ask me questions. Hey, Lord, don't ask me questions. I think I got that from Neil Young's Southern Man. Southern Man. Southern, that, that's, uh, those chords um, are the same thing as don't ask me questions. Hmm. I guess he can't patent that change, though. You can't, you can't. There's, I mean, as Bo, Bo Diddley said, he couldn't patent a rhythm, never mind about a chord change, you know. You know, you don't sit around consciously do that, but every writer, I mean, I listen to to songs, and I think, oh, yeah, I know where he got that bit, yeah. I mean, Elton John's latest single, he's got a bit that goes, da, 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 which is from, she took my little bottle of love potion number nine. I mean, he's pulled it straight out, stuck mm -hmm. it in the song, you know. So, um... You know, that's that's how we write songs, basically. Us guys, we steal them all. Oh my God, I love that. I love when I love when an <laughs> artist just whips out a guitar and starts playing for one, and then starts making fun of all the ideas that they have as artists and where it came from, or where other artists get their ideas too. That's fantastic. Honesty, <laughs> so rare. <laughs> it is. Um, this last clip from Parker, and I hope I'm starting to convince you of the worthiness of having GP on our show. Well, he is a great interview. Isn't he? Yeah. yeah. 
He's uh, very wry in talking about his band and their considerable egos and how they interacted with a very famous producer. I think this is the first time that uh, GP and the Rumor actually had a producer who was not obsessed with how good the band were and how, you know, he wasn't a big fan. Jack Nietzsche produced it. And um, he wasn't a big fan, so it wasn't like he was impressed with all their ferocious playing. The word ferocious comes back again. And he straightened them out a lot and straightened me out a lot and, you know, kept saying, you're playing everything too fast and, and you know, trying to find out whether we were serious about what we were doing or whether we were just full of ego, you know, and just because that's what he thought the band. He thought the rumor had more ego than the Rolling Stones, and he's worked with the Rolling Stones. He played tambourine on Satisfaction, as it happens. So he knows what he's talking about. And I said, yeah, i got to agree. they got a lot of ego, these guys, you know. I mean, they really thought they were the business, you know, and the producer was like, should have been doing what they say. Not in a sort of blatant way, you know, not in an American way, in an English way, which is a nasty undertone. You don't actually say it, but it's there. Yeah. Well, that's production, but I guess I'm curious, too, about writing. Did you feel that from a song point of view that that was a, a high point for you as a writer? I was drunk the whole time okay. write, writing Squeezing Out Sparks. I mean, I was on a, on a roll there. I was touring and I was out of my brain most of the time. I really was. I don't know how I wrote songs that decent. You know, it wasn't, it was just, uh, they just came out. I so, was, you know, touring and just drinking and having fun, and these songs came out that, that are like they are. I guess I was a very troubled person underneath it all. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm sorry, I, I may have missed it. Does he mention the producer in that clip? Does he say who it is? Yeah, Jack uh, Nietzsche. Jack Nietzsche, okay. So Jack plays the tambourine on Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Though, the ch 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 Hey, hey, hey. Okay, okay, that's great. More tambourine. <laughs> so he's talking about cockiness, right? And, and this to me is really interesting because you've got a new band and they, they come together and they think they're good and you have to think you're good, yeah. right? You need that kind of defiant confidence. To There's survive. A, to survive yes. and to grow, right? And, and you have to have confidence in yourself as musicians and as a, a collective that what you're doing has a direction and has, a, has its own unique sound and, and, an, and a significance that's right and so you can see them talking back to jack about who in himself is a legend you know he worked with many people including the stones including neil young and he's a big shot but they are their own cocky selves and graham parker says it's not the american cockiness it's the british cockiness I, <laughs> we could spend an hour talking about the difference between <laughs> what those different types of cockiness Next are week. yeah okay for sure So that does it for Season 2 of Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, for all his incredible work on the show, even though he admitted to liking Parting the USA by Miley Cyrus a few episodes ago. We forgive you, Adam, even if we don't forget. And don't forget to tell us what song you are embarrassed to love, because that was the topic with Adam, by following us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Can't wait to play some of your suggestions for the songs you hate to love. We're back in just a few weeks, the second week of January to be precise, and we need you to tell all your friends about Famous Lost Words. And hey, if you'd like to help us reach more people, contact us if you want to sponsor our show. Again, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to catch up with past episodes, including interviews with Rod Stewart, Justin Bieber, Pink, Tina Turner, Coldplay, Fleetwood Mac, 
Ozzy Osbourne, getting the point. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Elton John, Backstreet Boys, Prince, an excellent interview with him. Tom Petty, Taylor Swift, great chat with her. Janet Jackson, Peter Frampton, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and many others. You can listen to those on the iHeartRadio app and on Apple Podcasts. Coming up on Episode 1 of Season 3, just a few weeks away, a spectacular interview with the Beatles and a story about when fans of a 70s boy band got so worked up they actually got a lot of people pretty worried. It's both troubling and hilarious. Can't wait to talk to you in January of 2019 on Famous Lost Words. <laughs> 